We've been talking a lot about the wonderful freedoms we have in Christ in our sermon series studying the book of Galatians. But what exactly does that freedom look like? I want to share with you an illustration that John Piper shares regarding this topic. He writes, freedom is the opportunity, ability, and the desire to do that which will give you the most joy 10,000 years from now. Now, this definition suggests that true freedom has four parts, opportunity, ability, desire, and lasting joy. For true freedom to exist, all four things must be in place. Now, let's suppose you decide to go skydiving. That is, you want to go up in an airplane, jump out, land on the ground, and walk away with nothing broken and a smile on your face. So you book a place to go skydiving, but you're stuck in very heavy traffic. You miss your appointment, and as you are stuck on that highway, you look up and see the plane from the skydiving school flying overhead. With sadness and some frustration, you realize that you won't go skydiving today. Are you free to go skydiving? Not on that day. You see, you lack the opportunity, even though you have the desire to do so. Now, let's play out this story in another way. You get there on time, but in this scenario, you forget to reserve a slot. And when you arrive at the skydiving school, they say, we're full today, I'm sorry. Well, how about next Saturday, you ask them? We're full then also. And the next, same thing, we're full. Well, when can I take the class, you ask? We're booked solid for the next 17 weeks, the man replies. Are you free to go skydiving? Do you have the freedom? No, because you lack the ability to learn what you need to know how to skydive. In this case, desire and opportunity are not enough. Now, let's run the story a third time. This time, you are on time. You are able to secure a reservation slot. So you fly up and are ready to jump. And then the instructor opens the door, and there, with the wind rushing by, he says, jump. But as you look out the door, you see how far away the ground is. You suddenly change your mind. You think to yourself, I want to jump out of the plane? I must be crazy. Now you have the opportunity and the ability, but the desire has disappeared. But the friendly skydiving instructor doesn't hear your thoughts and gives you a push out the door and you go screaming. Are you free? No, because you didn't want to do it and had to be forced to do it against your will. No willful desire to jump out. Now let's tell the story one final time. You're on time. You secure a reservation slot to learn how to skydive. You happily jump out of the plane. As you plummet to the ground at over 100 miles per hour, the thought occurs to you that this is the most exciting thing you've ever done. All seems well. You see the ground rushing towards you, but you're not afraid because you have two parachutes, the main chute and the reserve chute. When the moment comes, you pull the ripcord for the main chute, but then nothing happens. No worries, you think. I have a backup. So you calmly pull the cord for the reserve chute, but something is wrong and the reserve chute doesn't deploy. Now you begin to scream for help, but no one can hear you. And even if they could hear you, they couldn't help you. With a sickening thud, you hit the ground. Are you free? Yes, in a way, but not much of a lasting joy. Your expression of freedom has led to your death.
as this illustration graphically shows, freedom is more than simply doing whatever you want to do. True freedom is the opportunity, ability, and the desire to do those things which will bring the deepest joy 10,000 years from now, as Piper would say. As Pastor Ray Pritchard noted, many things that people do in the name of freedom actually leads to their own destruction. That's why Christians should never envy the freedoms of sinners. Often we look at people who sleep around and think, that must be fun. Or we envy those who built their lives upon greed, lust, pride, power, prestige, gluttony, materialism, violence, hedonism, the pursuit of wealth, the acquisition of worldly fame, the practice of moral perversion, and we think, that's a fun way to live. How wrong we are. These people have jumped out from the plane of sexual freedom only to discover the chute won't open. They have jumped from the plane of material success only to face their own destruction. They have jumped from the plane of hedonism, pride, power, and sexual excess. And now they are in a free fall that will end in their own death. The smile you see is a smile that comes just before they slam into the earth. Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And while many of us understand or know this truth, it's still very hard to live out this type of freedom because of our sin nature. And so the Apostle Paul will address how we find victory over our sin nature to fully express Christian freedom the way it should here in this second part of Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 as we take a look at verses 16 to 26. Galatians chapter 5, I read now verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here Paul challenges the Galatian Christians to walk in the Spirit, He has already given them a theological lesson in the importance of embracing a grace-oriented theology and to stand firm in the essential doctrine of salvation through faith alone against the false teachings of the Judaizers. And here he now challenges and admonishes the Galatian Christians to walk in the Spirit as the Holy Spirit indwells, seals, and baptizes each believer at the moment of salvation. A Christian is to live their lives by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. But know that to walk in the power of the third person of the triune Godhead is not an automatic process in our lives. We must daily and constantly be filled with the Spirit to walk in the Spirit by submitting to the Lord's will, by yielding to His desires and depending on His strength and ability. And for what purpose are we to walk and rely on the Spirit? so that we do not fall into the lures and traps of the flesh, which will lead to our downfall. And in order that you and I can and will have victory over sin and temptation. Now, walking in the Spirit does not mean you will never sin again on this side of heaven. And that's because of our sin nature. But it does mean we can have victory over sin and temptation with the Spirit's help if we allow Him to help us. Why do we need to continually rely on the Holy Spirit's help and to be filled with the Spirit? Look at verse 17. 
For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. This verse reminds us that a Christian has two natures, two ways of living, a sin nature and a new nature. The sin nature is that which we have since our birth because it has been passed down by Adam who first sinned. Now, it doesn't mean we put all the blame on Adam because we also have sinned, but it simply means that this sin nature is inherent in all human beings. But the wonderful truth is that we have a new nature when we place our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And when the Holy Spirit indwells us, we are new creations with a new nature at that moment of salvation. But since we still have our old sin nature, which will only be eradicated when we see the Lord, when we move to the third aspect of our salvation, which is glorification, remember justification and then sanctification and then glorification as the complete picture of salvation, until that time, our inclination, if we don't walk in the Spirit, is naturally to sin, especially if we don't depend on the Holy Spirit. As Paul tells us, we have to understand that there is a war that is raging inside each and every one of us. If you and I are not prepared to go to war, then we will never win the daily battles. In an actual war, let's say you are a soldier in enemy lands, and someone comes up to you and offers you food, will you blindly accept? Probably not. You will wonder if it's laced with poison. And so before accepting the food, you will probably want to have it checked out. You will want to test it to make sure it's safe to eat. That is what it means to be prepared as you go into battle, as you fight the war. Or just like in this COVID pandemic, to make sure we win the war against the virus, we have to prepare ourselves by wearing masks, by washing our hands often, by practicing social distancing and, and good hygiene that is being prepared against the war against the COVID-19 virus. But yet Christians fall into sin and temptation because we don't recognize these two warring natures in our lives. We are not prepared to go to war against our sin nature with the Holy Spirit's help. And so the struggle is real. The sin nature desires evil and to do what is wrong, while the new nature desires to be holy and do what is right. As a Christian, we know the things we need to do that is right and to avoid other things that displease God. But instead of doing what is right, our minds are filled with wanting to do what we know we should not do. Which nature shows up in our lives and wins is based on what nature we focus on. This often told illustration, I believe, best illustrates this point. In this old Native American tale, it recounts the story of a tribal chief who is telling the gathering of young brave warriors about the struggle within. The chieftain says, it's like two dogs fighting inside of us. There is one good dog who wants to do the right, and there is another dog who always wants to do the wrong. Sometimes the good dog seems stronger and is winning the fight, but sometimes the bad dog is stronger and wrong is winning the fight. 
one young brave asked the chief, who's going to win at the end? To which the chief wisely answered, the one you feed. The one you feed will win. In the war between our two natures, which nature are you feeding? The Bible is very clear in verse 17. Both natures are contrary to each other. They are against each other. Walking with the Spirit allows the Holy Spirit to temper and to impede the pull of the sinful flesh so that you do not do the things you want to do, but no, you shouldn't do it. You and I can't do this by ourselves. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Speaking from experience, let me say that perhaps you want to eat that fifth cookie for dessert. You enjoy a great cookie dipped in milk. Now, you've already had four. Now, if no one is around you, you will easily eat that fifth cookie, even if you know it's not good for you. No one is there to stop you. You'll say, let me just enjoy my fifth cookie. But if you have someone with you who's telling you to limit your cookie intake, they're telling you, if you eat that fifth cookie, you're going to regret it. If you eat that fifth cookie, it's not going to be good for you there perhaps would then be a much higher chance you don't eat that fifth cookie. In fact, that person who is with you may not only encourage and warn you, but they may also take that box of cookies and run and hide it in a place you can't find or put it in a place that's hard for you to reach so that you won't be tempted to eat another one. I hope you see how having someone with you to help fight your temptations will grant you a higher chance of success. In the same way that is the role of the Holy Spirit, and hence Paul's admonition to walk in the Spirit in this war against our sin nature. He is there to help us fight our temptations. But we remember also that we have to listen to the Spirit's prompting, or else it's useless. Just like in this cookie illustration, just because someone tells me not to eat another one doesn't mean I will not eat another one. Or just because that person hides the cookies to a place where I can't find it doesn't mean that I'm going to not go out and search everywhere to find it. And when I do find it, I'm going to eat it. In the same way, even if the Holy Spirit is helping us We can easily disregard His prompting. We can willfully ignore His godly advice. We can even intentionally do what's wrong in spite of the roadblocks the Spirit puts up so that we won't fall into sin. Walking in the Spirit is not a guarantee that we will not sin. It just means He gives us the enablement to have the victory over sin and temptation if we choose to rely on His strength. So, for example, you may put Bible verses all around the house, in your office cubicles, on your phone, in your car, as a way to remind yourself to avoid temptations, and also as a warning for you from falling into sin. And and that's a good practice. But there's nothing magical about having those Bible verses up there, because it's so easy to cover them up. It's so easy not to look at them. It's so easy not to read them. The power to avoid sin does not come solely from your own power or from the rules you set up or from the activities you do, like putting up Bible verses. 
But it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit as you pray to have the strength to avoid falling into sin as those Bible verses will remind you of that truth. And that's the point of verse 18. Look with me. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. A Christ-like life is not lived when you put up a lot of rules for your own life, minimizing the role of the Holy Spirit, or somehow equating the setting up of these rules in your life to be the same as walking in the Spirit. Rules alone will not cause you not to sin. You know, I know of churches and Christian organizations and and Christian schools that have lots of good rules, regulation, and guidelines about perhaps dating or being alone with someone of the opposite gender or not consuming alcohol or having good morals and representing the organization well, not going to parties, not doing this or that. But do these rules guarantee that you will have someone who does not sin? Of course not. As I've said in their respective contexts, those rules serve a good purpose. But as you and I know, these rules alone won't prevent one from sinning because one can easily skirt these rules and disobey them if they really want to do something unwise. If you think that rules alone will prevent you from sinning, then you are naive because those who want to sin will sin. Those who want to cheat will cheat or will find a way to cheat. You know, even the reformer, Martin Luther, before his conversion, struggled with this. He was torn up because he wanted to be the most pious of monks. He really wanted to live a holy life. And he felt very holy, having followed all the rules that the Catholic Church had set for one who is a holy person. And yet, in spite of all the holy things he did, he still struggled with sin. And so in that great struggle, he went back to the Scriptures and he rediscovered that the Bible talks about the fact that it is by God's grace that we overcome these sins. It is by God's enablement through the power of the Holy Spirit, not by your own power, not by you yourself going through rules and regulations. The war against sin and temptation is not one with you simply setting up rules, guidelines, and practices, and then following them. You and I must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to lead a Spirit-filled life, to walk daily and constantly with the Spirit, so that you and I can be victorious over our sin nature. How many times, when you feel like you're about to sin, do you immediately drop to your knees and pray and tell the Lord, Lord, I need your help, I need your help. If you aren't doing that, then you need to. You see, putting it all together, what we have here is our first principle. Winning the sin war, number one. Rely on the Spirit. He is your enablement. Winning the sin war, number one. Rely on the Spirit. He is your enablement. You and I have to walk and rely on the Spirit's aid, not on our own effort and our own works. And just like the Jewish laws could not help the Galatians be victorious over their sin. So also us, if we rely on various techniques or rules or disciplines without the Spirit's help to try to achieve victory over sin in our lives. 
Just like if a country suddenly goes to war and the government officials throw you a machine gun like the M16 or the AR-15 and say, let's go to war and we're going to win. Now, you may have a gun, but if you don't know how to use it or don't have the training and the practice of using it, it doesn't matter if you have a gun or not. You will lose to the enemy who is well-trained on his gun. As Christians, you and I have the Holy Spirit that indwells us. But are we properly using Him? Are we daily training ourselves to rely upon His power and His strength in order to win over the enemy and therefore to live victoriously? Look at verses 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verses 19 to 21, Paul gives a laundry list of sins of the flesh. Now, this list is not all-encompassing as a list, but it should give us as readers an idea of what things Christians are not to do. These are things that are not consistent with what God desires for someone who is supposedly filled with the Spirit. In fact, as you read this list, you may have committed some of these sins just within the week. Now, notice there's no ranking of sins. It just refers to them as one unit known as the works of the flesh. So no one person can say that, well, I'm not guilty of this, but I'm guilty of that, but that ranks a little bit lower. The reality is you should read this list and humbly acknowledge that you have committed many of these things. Don't allow your spiritual pride to somehow make you think that you're better than someone else because you only check off on one or two while others check off on three or four. This is a list that says if you have just messed up in one or two or three of these areas, you are still exhibiting the works of the flesh. And this list shows that none of us are exempt from daily walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul states in verse 19 that the sins listed here are those that can be seen publicly he says they are evident to all. That means there's a whole host of sins that are the works of the flesh that are private. Imagine that. Again, stressing that unless we rely upon the Spirit's help, then we will easily fall into sin and temptation of all types, private or public. Now, Paul's listing of these sins is to serve as a vivid warning for what Christians need to avoid because these are all products of the sin nature we are fighting against. Just like in war, you and I need to know what the enemy looks like. You and I need to know what the enemy is capable of. You and I need to know how the enemy infiltrates us. This is what we are fighting against. You see, the most dangerous thing in war is when you and I cannot identify the enemy. When the enemy has infiltrated the camp and you still don't recognize it. 
when we minimize the enemy's powers, we underestimate it. And here Paul gives this list so we won't do just that. Paul is clearly telling us and wisely telling us this is what the enemy looks like. This is the enemy's or the flesh's capabilities. And we are not to minimize these sins that are the works of the flesh. We are not to do them. You see, principle number two, winning the war, winning the sin war number two, identify what sin looks like. Winning the sin war number two, identify what sin looks like. Now, the Apostle Paul groups these sins into four groups. Let's quickly take a look. The first category is sexual sins, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness. These are sins ranging from illicit sexual relationship and actions to engaging in unclean acts, whether in the mind or in action. In this area of sin, many Christians fail, regardless of gender. Sadly, the proliferation and the easy accessibility of pornographic material and us living in a hypersexualized culture has led not only to a loss of innocence at a younger age, but somehow the acceptance that sinful sexual acts are somehow okay in our culture if the circumstances present itself as such. And yet the Bible says, in no circumstances are these sexual sinful acts ever okay. The Bible speaks against them. Parents, talk to your children about sex and teach them what the Bible says about what it means to live in holiness. Many of us think that this is the role of the church or the Sunday school teacher or even a Christian school. No, it is your role. Tell them that the beauty of intimacy and sex is only to be enjoyed as a gift from God for those in the bounds of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Now, this is an old-fashioned thinking. This is the timeless truth of what the Bible teaches. Have an open and honest conversation with your children in this area. Because if you don't teach or talk about it, then the world will. And they've already begun to bombard the minds of your children and youth with what the worldview is with regards to this topic, which is very different from what the Bible teaches. The second category is religious sins, idolatry and and witchcraft or sorcery. The evil one desires nothing more than for us to worship anything else but the one true God. So while we may not worship actual false gods in the form of idols, he puts out there so many things for us to do and for us to be so preoccupied and busy with so many things that they become idols in our lives. Idols can take the form of work, career, achievement, hobbies, sports, music, arts, social media, and other things. Anything that takes first place in our lives is an idol. And then, of course, this generation's fascination with the occult is a big problem. It is an abomination to the Lord, the Bible says, with regards to sorcery and witchcraft. And somehow the twisting and the departure from the truth of the Scripture is also a form of occultism. The fascination and desire to believe in everything and anything, including crazy conspiracy theories and secret societies like the Illuminati, instead of focusing on the grounding 
of ourselves and the truth of the Scriptures is what Paul calls the works of the flesh. So be careful. The third category is what we call relational sins. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. These sins deal with our interactions with one another. They may affect your home, your church community, your school, your place of work, your friendships, any place where you are dealing and interacting with someone else. Paul's point was that how you act in various types of community life setting, including your own family life, is a testimony to the world. If we look just like the world in how we treat one another, then what's the difference? We will not be able to identify the enemy because the enemy is just like us. Of course, no family or no friendship is perfect. We did a home series at the beginning of this year which reflects this. But that is not our license to continue in such disharmony and in such dysfunction. This lack of perfection doesn't mean we can't strive to be different from the world. We should be self-aware to acknowledge when we are guilty of things like jealousies or outbursts of anger and hating others and then be willing to change with the Spirit's help because these sins are not consistent with being a Christian. The fourth category is what we can call influential sins, drunkenness and revelries. These are sins that somehow impair your judgment and keep you from thinking straight. Alcohol, drugs, wild parties that affect or influence your judgment. How many times do you go to a party and instead of being the influencer, you are the one being influenced? And if you somehow try to be different or, or stand your ground at one of those parties where you try to be the influencer, you are called the party pooper. You are the killjoy. You are the buzzkill. And the pressure is so great for you to join the revelries in the party like the world presents it to be. But you know that it doesn't line up with your Christian faith. How many of us fall into being influenced instead of being the influencer. You know, as a side note, can I just say that Christians can have a lot of fun at parties and in celebrations that are Christ-honoring. A Christian's party is not simply a Bible study, mind you. I've been parts of many wonderful Christian Christ-honoring parties, full of laughter, full of joy. But the great part is I don't feel that I'm compromising my faith in any way. Those parties are edifying and encouraging. So just understand that the Christian life is full of joy. But what Paul is writing here is talking about parties that compromise your Christian faith. We're being influenced instead of the one taking our stand. And then the phrase, and the like, means that this is not an exclusive list. The admonition at the end of verse 21 is that those who are involved in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians will lose their salvation. This is simply showing that those who exhibit these characteristics are similar to those who are unbelievers. And living like this may cause people to wonder if you are a Christian or not, since they can't tell the difference between friend and foe. We can't identify the enemy, 
And if we can't do it, certainly the world can't identify the enemy. So I hope you see my point. To win the sin war, you have to be able to identify the sin. And Paul gives us a laundry list here. Take a look with me at verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23 is very familiar to many of us who grew up in the church. It speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics of a believer who is Spirit-filled and evidences one who walks in the Spirit. I want you to notice a few things. First, it is referenced to as the fruit of the Spirit. This is stressing upon the fact that this is not something that naturally comes to the believer. When there are two natures that are warring inside the believer, this is not natural. These characteristics are developed in a person through the work and enablement of the Holy Spirit by living out a Spirit-filled life. Now notice also that fruit is singular, not plural. Now I often hear fruits of the Spirit, but it is fruit, singular. That means you and I don't get to pick and choose which of these we want to work on and to live out. All of these named characteristics are considered one unit and should be found, all of them, in the life of a Christian who is under the Holy Spirit's control. You see, principle number three, winning the sin war number three, develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Winning the sin war number three, develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life. When you and I strive with the Holy Spirit's help to develop these qualities in your life, it will offset, it will push back against the lust of the flesh. It has to be developed in your life, not where we expect these characteristics to be developed in other people's lives and then we will respond appropriately. No, it begins with you first. The first three characteristics listed here generally speak of the Christian's inner spiritual life. Love, joy, peace. These are the qualities that will naturally come out when one is intimately walking with the Lord. The ability to love, even to love your enemies. The expression of joy, even through difficult times and times of trials. And then the peace that passes all understanding while going through times of uncertainties or times of tribulation. The second three characteristics generally speak of how a Christian deals with others. Long-suffering, which means patience, kindness, and goodness. We are to treat others patiently, meaning to put up with them, to bear them, because they too are a child of God. To show kindness to all types of people, as hard as it may be, because Jesus would do the same. Or being good to those who may not deserve it, doing unto others how you would want to be treated, but also being good to those who may not deserve it for the sake of Christ. The third set of three characteristics generally deal with how a Christian is to live in all areas of life, faithfulness, gentleness, and with self-control. Because in all that we do, whether in work or in school or in whatever social situation, we are to be faithful because our life's purpose is to glorify God through our faithfulness. 
We should also be gentle in our dealing with others as we recognize that we are under submission to God's Word. And of course, to be controlled and disciplined because the Spirit gives us the power not to fall into the temptations of sin. A self-controlled person is a person who is controlled by the Spirit. At the end of this verse, Paul says these characteristics are not restrained by any law, so develop them as much as you want. No one's going to make a rule that says you, you shouldn't be faithful or you can't be kind. So go out and fully express these things with the Spirit's help. And if you can indeed live these characteristics out, it will minimize your chances of falling into sin and temptation. That's why we often say return evil with kindness. This week was one of my son's birthdays. And because of COVID, we chose to celebrate it at home instead of eating out. We let him pick from one of his favorite restaurants, and he chose one located in Green Hills. We placed our order on grab food, and we waited for the order to arrive. But we waited quite a long time. After this long wait, the driver called and said that it was raining hard in his area, and he didn't have a raincoat, and therefore he had to cancel on us. If only he had told us sooner. Well, it was getting quite late, and so we called the restaurant to see if they could cancel the order because it would be very difficult to get another driver. But they said we couldn't cancel because they had already started preparing the food. We were able to get a second driver, and so we were pleased with that. But then we wondered why it took him so long to pick it up at the restaurant and arrive at our home. And we checked the app and noticed that he had to make another drop-off at a different delivery location before he arrived at our location. Long story short, by the time the food arrived, it was about an hour and a half past our normal eating time. We were all hungry. I was irritated and short-fused. When they rang the doorbell, Cindy asked me how much we should give as tip. My initial reaction wanted to say nothing. In fact, let me go and give them an earful to tell them how bad their service is and how cold the food will be. But then I caught myself, perhaps being reminded of having to preach this sermon. I caught myself and realized, wait, the driver doesn't know me. He just knows that he is delivering to a church where we live. And it is being delivered to a certain pastor, Stephen Tan. If I were to respond in such a way that was harsh and angry, he may wonder, what type of pastor is this who lives in the church who cannot perhaps understand that I have to work hard to make ends meet? And then I caught myself and realized that my response is a reflection of Christ to this man who may not be a believer. So I told Cindy, give him a hundred pesos and tell him, God bless and don't say anything else. Now, was I still hungry? Sure. Was I still irritated? Absolutely. But there are certain things we have to do so that we can be a testimony to this world through a spirit-filled life. I share this story with you, not to say we're always this nice or kind, but to share that there is a difference in how we respond if we are spirit-filled or if we allow our flesh 
to take over. As we said earlier, which will win? The spirit or the flesh? What will win is that which you feed. That is why we are encouraged to go live out the fruit of the spirit. Look at verses 24 to 26. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In these verses, Paul again reminds Christians that we do not have to live in sin or to live out the sinful life because the things of the flesh and its accompanying passions and desires have been dealt with to the cross of Jesus Christ when we place our trust in Him. The resulting action of the Holy Spirit's indwelling and baptizing work in our lives gives us the victory over these things of the flesh. Now, it doesn't eradicate our sin nature, but now we have the means to overcome these things with the Spirit's help. Again, the charge in verses 25 to 26, that we should walk in the Spirit because we have the Spirit through Christ. You see here principle number four in winning the sin war. Number four, winning the sin war. Number four, enter the battle with victory in mind. Enter the battle with victory in mind. You and I cannot win any wars if you and I never fight any battles. There is a war out there. And whether you like it or not, you and I are at war. And you and I have to fight in this war. We have to fight the daily battles for our spiritual survival. Don't be naive into thinking that the world isn't too bad or that you won't fall into sin's grasp as long as you're relatively good. That is a lie of Satan. This is an evil world. And there is a war waged every day. I remember the story of a young American couple, Jay Austin and Lauren Goghagen, both 29, They quit their jobs to take a year-long bike trip around the world. Sadly, the trip took a fatal turn on a route near the Afghan border where they were stabbed to death by alleged ISIS terrorists. The couple ignored warnings about the dangers of the region, claiming to believe that evil was a make-believe concept. Earlier in their journey while in Morocco, Austin had written, You watch the news and you read the papers and you're led to believe that the world is a big, scary place. People, as the narrative goes, are not to be trusted. People are bad. People are evil. People are axe murderers and monsters and worse. I don't buy it, he writes. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. It's easier to diminish and dismiss an opinion as abhorrent than to strive to understand it. Badness exists, you write, sure, but even that's quite rare. By and large, humans are kind, self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous and wonderful and kind. No greater revelation has come from our journey than this. It's pretty shocking to think that anyone could be this naive. But yet this is what is being propagated into the minds of young and old alike in our generation today. 
All you have to do is just watch the news, go on social media, and you will know that evil is alive and active in this world. There is a difference. There is the sin nature, which leads us to do what is wrong, and then the new nature, which leads us to do what is Christ-honoring. And so there is a war with the flesh and the sinful world that we better engage in. You and I have to enter this battle to knowingly know that there is this battle and we are to prepare for it. In the Christian life, you can't win over the flesh if you have never engaged it with the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to live out the Spirit-filled life. And when you go charging into battle, you and I have to know we will win. Can you imagine if you were in an army and your commanding officer was giving you a pep talk before the battle and he tells you, now I know you may all die and the enemy is really strong and there's a high likelihood that we will fail, but don't worry, at least we can say we tried. Now what kind of pep talk is that? Would you want to go into battle with this type of exciting pep talk? Of course not. The typical pep talk will claim that victory is ours. The enemy is strong, but we are stronger. We may be outnumbered, but you are better trained and better equipped. We will win and we shall overcome. This sort of motivation is the type of motivation that wins battles. And that's what we have going on here. Paul is giving us a biblical pep talk. You Christians can fight and defeat the sin nature with what you and I go to war with. We have the Holy Spirit. We are already victorious in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will enable us to have victory because we live in the Spirit and we walk in the Spirit. So let's go out and win the sin war, allowing the new nature in Christ to decisively diminish our sin nature and by doing so serve to be a unique testimony to the world. And so by way of recap, to win the sin war, remember, rely on the Spirit. He is our enablement. Identify what sin looks like. You need to know what the enemy looks like and develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life so that as you develop these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, it will push back against these temptations of the flesh. And then finally, enter the battle with victory in mind. Because in Christ, we are already victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this biblical pep talk from Paul. Too often, we are either ignorant of this spiritual battle raging in our lives every day, or we enter the battle defeated. Thank you for the Holy Spirit the third person of the Godhead, who enables us to have the victory in you. I pray that every one of us will walk in the Spirit, will exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, so that we can daily win this battle against our sin nature, and by doing so, live a life that is holy and pleasing and serve as a unique testimony to a world that is in such need of hope. Father, I pray that you would 
allow the Holy Spirit to enable each person to desire to engage in this battle. Help us to enjoy what it means to live victorious Christian lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.